Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. The biggest unions in San Jose, which represent over 4,000 workers, have reached a stalemate with the city and have voted yes to a three-day strike. While both sides have met up again for renegotiations, if an agreement isn't reached soon, one of the largest planned strikes in recent history will happen on August 15th. Of course, this isn't the only battle being waged between city workers and the cities they serve. A one-day strike just occurred in Los Angeles earlier this week, with over 7,000 city workers taking to the streets. The demand for higher wages, for better working conditions, for, in essence, more respect, is a call that seems to be coming from all sides, from the public to the private sector. But will this increase in strikes, and for some, in unionizing in the first place, end up giving workers what they are looking for? And can cities and employers realistically meet the demands? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Mary Hughes. With the strike looming in San Jose and other striking efforts happening around California, let's start this conversation locally. I'm joined now by Enrique Lopez Lira, director of the Low Wage Work Program at the UC Berkeley Center for Labor Research and Education. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. So as I said just there, let's let's focus on the Bay Area and, and what's going on here. What are city workers in San Jose asking for? What is it that they are, you know, what is this strike about for them? And what the city is currently saying that they're unable to give them? Uh, yes, uh, good question, because we, we have heard a lot about various strikes, like you mentioned, and they all have some elements of commonality, but there's also some differences. And uh, uh, one of the differences in the city of San Jose strike is the uh, workers are uh, wanting the city to do something about the uh, high vacancy rate in uh, city positions. Uh, they 
they feel like they're working harder because the city is not filling those vacancies and uh, especially since the pandemic and uh, they want uh, a commitment that um, uh, those positions would be filled with um, with employees and not just you know temporary workers uh, uh, but but actual fill those positions with with workers so that they don't have to uh, be putting as much as many hours and as as much work as they've had to uh, to compensate for the lack of full-time staffing that the city uh, is dealing with right now. Okay, so on the other side of this then is what are the sticking points where the city is concerned? You know, are, are they saying they're unable to, to deal with this vacancy issue? What's stopping them from meeting the workers where the workers are saying they need to be met? If you look at data for vacancy rates in San Jose, they are uh, not that much different than other Bay Area cities like Oakland and San Francisco. But that doesn't mean much because those cities also have very, you know, pretty high double digit vacancy rates. And, uh, you know, the workers are asking for for uh, for those positions to be filled in those other cities as well. And L.A. Uh, also, um, the, the city workers, uh, part of the strike was because of the high vacancy rates as well. And uh, if you ask HR folks at the city and county, and I should mention that, um, uh, you know, COVID has ended as far as a pandemic uh, approach of, of, uh, of government officials and others, but uh, we're still lingering with a lot of the aftermath of COVID and, and, and the vacancies at the city and county level is, is one of those issues. So if you look at employment, uh, Post-COVID, uh, it has rebounded at the federal level and, and, and in the private sector, but in, at the city and county level, it has not rebounded to pre-pandemic levels. And if you talk to some HR folks, they, they might give very different reasons, but one of the reasons they, they mention now is that they're, they're, they can't compete with um, uh, some of the uh, private sector jobs that are now fully work from home or that are you know, pay went up post the pandemic. And so they're saying that they're finding it hard to attract workers. Um, But, you know, that, you know, some of those uh, responses uh, sound like sort of same old, same old HR speak. Um, And the pandemic didn't really create this. It just exacerbated problems that were there before. And I think that the, the staffing issues have have been in place, you know, since the previous crisis of the Great Recession of two thousand nine. So, uh, the the you know COVID magnified this, but I think workers are saying, look, this has been going on for a long time, and uh, we you know we can't uh, just keep working harder to make up for the lack of uh, willingness to hire the right amount of workers for for the city needs or the county needs. That's a good point that you bring up because the the COVID pandemic really did end up shining uh, a light on, you know, cracks in the foundation and and issues uh, fundamentally with our infrastructure that had been there before. But but this event ended up really pointing it out uh, that there weren't fail safes involved. So with all of that in mind, what are the effects of something like this impending strike 
on a city. And to take it a little bit further, you know, how can we move forward uh, from something like this where there's worker satisfaction and uh, a city more able to meet their needs? The the vacancy issue that I mentioned highlights some of the what makes the strike in San Jose a little different than some of the other strikes that, that we've heard before. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, there's also lots of commonalities, right? And the pandemic, like you just said, uh, n- is not only shining a light on on this issue, but it's also has been shining a light on just the precarious nature of a lot of these jobs. And again, this was not because of the pandemic. This was even pre-pandemic. Uh, so uh, the commonality among all these various strikes is the fact that uh, wages for these jobs are too low. They're not allowing workers to be self-sufficient, provide for their families. The other common element is just the uh, affordable housing crisis in the state. And the transportation issues that happen when folks have to keep living further and further away from where they work because they cannot afford to live where they work. And so the pandemic just, I think, made a lot of folks realize how precarious their situation is, whether it was care, child care, or adult care needs, whether it was, you know, the fact that people are traveling crazy distances to get to work and there's a real time tax that it's not progressive, that is borne out by the lower wage workers. And the fact that just housing has become such a an, af- an affordable proposition for 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 hardworking uh, individuals and their families. So at the Labor Center, we've done a couple of recent studies showing one that um, even when economic indicators were showing that the economy was booming pre-pandemic, the workers in the East Bay, for example, were struggling with low pay, unaffordable housing, uh, transportation issues, and those were primarily disproportionate effects on women and Black and Latino workers. We did another study looking at, uh, you know, workers covered, state workers covered by the um, union contract and uh we had a map that showed that pretty much uh, across the state, uh, these public, you know, state workers are not living where they work, and the problems more acute in terms of unaffordability in the coastal areas. But it's really statewide. So, you know, I think that public sector jobs used to be thought out as good paying jobs that allowed folks to have a comfortable middle-class type of lifestyle. And what we're finding out is that uh, these workers are struggling to make ends meet and struggling to provide for their families and wages are not keeping up. You know, one thing that's interesting is that when HR folks are looking at filling top positions like city manager offices or county manager offices, you know, they, they always justify a high salary to these employees are saying, well, we have to compete with the private sector for these uh, the, 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 this talent. But um, they don't seem to do the same when it comes to janitors or, uh, you know, uh, caseworkers or, 
or or teachers. There's no like we should look at the private sector and see what we have to uh, to pay. And so then they say, well, we can't fill those jobs because uh, we we can't compete with the private sector. But um, you know, they, they they seem to to be able to compete with the private sector when they're filling up top top positions. That was Enrique Lopez Lira, director of the Low Wage Work Program at UC Berkeley Center for Labor Research and Education. And now we are going to take a more broad look at strikes in this country, what we're seeing now and a little bit of what we've seen before. And for that, I'm turning to Michael Leroy, professor with School of Labor and Employment Relations and College of Law at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Professor Leroy, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Mary. So this is a topic that's on the minds of those of us in the Bay Area, but really it's been something I think we've been focused on nationally for quite some time now. And so I got curious, are we actually seeing more strikes now than perhaps we used to, or is it just a case of we're now more aware of what's going on between employers and employees these days. There's been a real sharp uptick in strike activity. And let me give you historical perspective. Um, The first series of research articles that I did as a a professor seeking tenure dealt with strike activity. And um, so I would look at data and we had uh, um, the, the U.S. Department of Labor would track these things. And we would have on the order of 250 to 450 strikes per year. Starting in the late 1970s, it started to trend down. And then it took a sharp decline uh, after the PACO strike, which was an illegal strike by air traffic controllers. It was in the early 1980s. And President Reagan fired uh, 10,000 air traffic controllers and then hired new uh, air traffic controllers. It was thought to be an inconceivable action that they could be fired uh, and that they could, uh, you could actually find people to take that job. Um, in any event, it did happen. And my research shows that other employers were significantly, seemed to be significantly influenced by that. So as you track the data going into the late 1980s, uh, early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, that same figure trended down to double digits, like 20 to 50 strikes a year. So we basically saw an 80% to 90% decrease in strike activity. Um, part of what fueled that was the use of hiring permanent striker replacements. In other words, well, to back up half a step, Mary, that's permitted by law. Um, and it, it's a case that comes out of San Francisco. Uh, it's called McKay Radio versus NLRB. Um, they hired, they had a strike, they hired replacement workers. They, and they they said you can hold on to the job um, permanently, but they didn't fire uh, the strikers, which seems like a very technical point. And the Supreme Court, in a, in a ruling that really is devastating to the labor movement, said that wasn't an unfair labor practice. Um, so it, that that thread was picked up then in the 1980s and later. We had slack in our labor markets, and and the whole ethos changed about. Uh, on the employer side about how to respond to strikes. And and I'm talking primarily about private sector now, not not public sector. Um, And so, uh, you know, again, from my research perspective, I looked at um, a a very significant uptick of hiring uh, permanent replacements in 
a wide variety of industries. So um, personally, I'm very surprised uh, by the uh, reemergence of striking. I mean, you might say, well, you're the labor expert, nothing should surprise you. But the answer is it it definitely surprises me because I've been looking at 30 years of a very suppressed activity, especially when you compare it against historical norms. So given your perspective then, after years of studying strikes and union movements, um, the fact that there are so many happening right now, that there is this surge, does that bode well for the workers who are participating in these strikes? Is it more favorable for them right now or not? Well, in the past two years, uh, the uptick in strike activity has produced uh, favorable um, contracts for unions. In other words, there's a gamble when unions strike, and the gambles have worked out well for unions. That's not to say there aren't exceptions. There may be. But for example, for the past 20 to 30 years, many unions, private and public sector, have been involved in what's called concessionary bargaining, where they're giving back to the employer. Um, In my part of the country, we had um, an epic strike um, involving the uh, United Auto Workers and Caterpillar. Caterpillar um, became the first major employer with the UAW to institute cost sharing and health insurance. And up until that point, it was 100% employer paid. The company won. And, you know, that that just took hold in a variety of other industries, cost shifting. A huge amount of the premium got shifted over to employees, and it spilled over into the non-unit sector. But going back to what we're looking at today, you see uh, higher than inflationary um, figures for um, wage settlements. Um, but you also see in the fine print, you see things uh, such as less forced overtime. Along those, and that's been a persistent concern because many employers have what is called lean staffing. We we saw this as a nation with the railroad workers. Um, they have just an insanely uh, efficient scheduling system that uh, in effect, means that workers have to answer callouts and even skip medical appointments to do it. So, uh, if there's a call to staff a, a freight run, they're, they're on it. And um, the sticking point that almost came to um, what amounts to a national emergency strike, the sticking point, uh, it wasn't wages, it came down to um, employee days off, especially to see a doctor, of all things, that that was going to grind the nation down to a halt. But I think that's symptomatic of what what's going on here, which is people are physically and mentally and emotionally worn out after year after year after year of forced overtime, uh, inadequate pay, um, burnout, um, and so now that we have labor markets in, in running in favor of most workers, they're taking advantage of it. Well, I think that's a, a good point there to, to kind of focus on the fact that workers are feeling this intense grind right now and that that's sort of a driving force uh, to these actions to picket and to call for strikes. Um, And I think that lends itself to what we're seeing also with workers who aren't a part of unions who are now beginning to unionize, I think specifically of workers with Starbucks. Um, And so these elements 
kind of work in tandem, don't they? Oh, it's, a, it's, it's true. And it's a good observation. And when you have the, um, it, you know, a union it always is thinking about labor substitute, uh, labor substitutions. Um, they, they understand that not only can an employer hire permanent replacement workers or temporary replacement workers, but they can replace workers with technology. They can replace workers by outsourcing work. Um, and uh, subcontracting work. So unions know the employer playbook uh, very well. Now, when you have as a factor that non-union competitors are being organized, and uh, you know, a, a case in point uh, would be, you know, the Teamsters are, are trying to ratify an agreement with UPS, but they're actively trying to unionize an industry that they had controlled and dominated, and it slipped away from them in the 1980s for the factors I indicated earlier. So those those are things that really augur uh, well, in the short run at least, for unions. So let's take a look at the other side of this conversation, if we can, because sort of consistently when it comes to either companies or in particular perhaps cities themselves uh, when they are faced with this situation, you know, there is the the comment that whatever funds have been allocated or whatever budget there is, that there's just no more to go around. Are there times where what a city is saying or a company is saying, you know, is true that they, they can only give so much uh, to employees before everyone uh, is in a bad position. Is that ever a reality? Oh, I think it's uh, often a reality. Uh, many times businesses, let's take cities out of it for just a minute. Let's talk about uh, for-profit businesses. They can technically afford more or much more, but um one way that they respond to uh, what they think is an unreasonable demand is they'll shut down that business. They can also literally close a plant and move it. And it's especially hard for unions if they move it overseas. And the point I'm driving at is, um, what do we mean by the, the employer can't afford it? Um, um, if that means um, it's not in the budget and it will never be in the budget, I think that's what happens typically. Um, and I also think it's unrealistic for unions to um, think that um, all of their uh, proposals can be funded. I mean, any experienced union negotiator would say, we get that. We understand that. Our job is to push for the best deal we can get. Um, in, and with within a public employer, you know, they have different concerns. But the, the bottom line concern is somehow balance providing services with not asking taxpayers to pay more. Um, so when a public employer says it's not in the budget, um, oftentimes they're not kidding. It's 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 not in the budget. It's not in the forecast, not in the plan. So um, then they have to think about, well, um, you know, for a large public entity, uh, maybe they take from one group and give it over here, or maybe they reduce services. That's another possibility. Um, it, it, many public employers have outsourcing capabilities. Um, there's contract language that deals with subcontracting. So again, I mean, I, I don't think employers are necessarily crying wolf here. Um, 
But but when they say we can't afford it, there's a context for it. So I kind of want to wrap things up with this question for you. Considering your perspective on all the years that have gone by and what we've seen in union movements, labor movements, um, and where we are right now, you know, are we going to have another kind of pendulum swing uh, where we see less strikes and less worker-led movements um, again? Or could this moment that we're in right now be a catalyst for workers to to continually want to stay at this level of proactiveness? Looking back on 200 years of strike activity in, in the U.S. and England, there is a pendulum effect. Um, you know, how did we get to the point in the 70s where we had um, um, a change in culture by employers to confront unions? And it was because labor agreements were so inefficient that they made employers, I mean, you know, to keep it simple, Ford and GM and Chrysler couldn't uh, compete with Honda in the market. Okay. So, um, you know, when one side gets too much, um, uh, too many wins, uh, they, they're laying the foundation for, um, the pendulum to swing. Is this going to be long-term next 30 years? I have no idea, but I, I, I'm, I'm confident that, um, this, that the conditions today that are favorable for workers, um, only have um, a certain limited time to um, be sustaining. Um, I think the the largest threat that I see at at, at this point for uh, unions and workers is technology, uh, artificial intelligence, job replacement. Um, you know that 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 to me is um, a, a worrisome uh, matter. I, I wrote an article last year on artificial intelligence and work. And I started my article by imagining the year uh, 2052, when the Boston Red Sox and the San Francisco Giants were in the World Series, and they were each being managed by um, a a robot in the dugout. Boston had the um, MIT robot with data crunching, and um, San Francisco had the Stanford robot. Um, But there's been a de-skilling of the baseball manager position, is what I'm saying. Um, now it's baseball analytics. It even shows up in their pay. They just don't get as much pay uh, as they used to. And I use that as a metaphor to say that, you know, if baseball managers are losing ground, we're all at risk. So I think that's a factor that unions are going to have to contend with. A factor they're not going to have to contend with is uh, competition from China. I mean, you know, our trade friction with China, beginning with the Trump administration and continuing very consistently with the Biden administration, we have an insourcing of jobs, um, a shortening of supply chains that works in favor of unions uh, who are less exposed to that kind of replacement activity, if you will. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I do think the pendulum will swing, but a lot of this depends on how people feel. I mean, there, there's there's a very um, personal aspect to striking. Um, and so we're in a, a period coming out of the pandemic. Um, people started to really have 
existential questions about what's the purpose of their work? What's the meaning of their life? Why are they doing all this? And we're in that moment. I don't think we're past that moment. Now, you know, at some point we'll be 10 years past that moment and we'll have new people, you know, people will leave the labor force, new people will come in, they will have different thoughts. Those are all dynamic um, inputs into the process, which make prediction kind of a fool's game in my judgment. That was Michael Leroy, professor with School of Labor and Employment Relations and College of Law at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Thanks for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Mary Hughes. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? You spend Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.